Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello. Welcome to Everything Else, the culture podcast from the Financial Times. My name's John Sonia. And I'm Griselda Murray-Brown. On this podcast, we'll be talking about what it means to be a man today and whether we're living through a crisis of masculinity. Later on, the cook, food writer and Instagrammer Deliciously Ella comes into the studio to tell us why she hates being called the Queen of Clean Eating. And we'll also speak to the FT's Neil Munshi about whiteness and blackness in America today, following his interview with the Jamaican-born poet and essayist Claudia Rankin. And now, masculinity in crisis. Well, we'll talk about that later. Really, (laughs) we're only talking about masculinity today because Griselda, we talked about girls and I was the only man in the studio last week, so it's role reversals. So we're doing the opposite this week. In fact, um, we've actually been thinking about doing this for quite a long time now. Yeah, it's a theme that keeps cropping up. Yeah, so it's the Oscars this weekend. We've seen a load of those films. Um, Moonlight and Manchester by the Sea are both very intimate studies of masculinity, male repression. Yeah, absolutely. And lots of books that we've been reading, particularly you, John, interested in authors like Knausgaard, talking about these ideas of what it is to be a man today and the sort of problems that, that men navigate. This week, there's a production of Twelfth Night opening at the National Theatre in London, and Tamsin Gregg has taken the role of Malvolia, which has been kind of feminised from Malvolio. And there's lots of this kind of gender-bending and gender-crossed casting going on on stage at the moment. So women playing men's roles and sort of investigating what does it mean to kind of act the mannerisms of a man. And on top of that, of course, we've had the election of Donald Trump and Brexit, and those two events have led to a lot of articles about masculinity, what it means today... Yeah, I mean, and people are saying not only have those events led to a kind of questioning of masculinity, but actually the sense of masculinity or a traditional masculinity being under threat actually caused those events. That's one argument that's made. And I guess the types of discussions we've been, people have been having about masculinity in relation to Trump and Brexit are in fact very different from some of the discussions about masculinity played out in books, theatre, film. So today I guess we're going to try and bring some of that together a bit and see if there is, in fact, a crisis of masculinity. So we invited our colleague Janan Ganesh onto the pod today. He's an FT political commentator and he also writes a column in FT Life and Arts at the weekend. And his column last week was called Masculinity Crisis? What Crisis? So we thought he'd be a great person to have today. Also with us is friend of the pod, John Day. You might remember him from a few episodes ago. He is the writer, critic and academic, and he was on the Booker Prize judging panel this year. So we're going to talk to him about masculinity and literature and whether he's noticed any themes. Janan and John, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Before we get going, I just want to actually think about how we even define masculinity. And John, what does that mean for you? I suppose I should start by saying that I'm not sure I quite agree with the premise of a crisis of masculinity as a kind of singular disaster that modern men are living through. I think it might make more sense to think of crises of masculinities and that I don't know if 
there is any kind of stable working definition of the male or the masculine. Um, and it's something that seems to me to have become increasingly complicated, both in kind of fictional, literary and, and cinematic representations of what it is to be a man in the early 21st century. I don't think I do have a good working definition. There are many, and I endorse some and not others. Janelle, what does the term, the very term masculinity mean for you? Uh, it seems to mean two separate crises. One of them is for working class men, especially white men, wage stagnation and lack of opportunities compared to maybe a generation ago or two generations ago. And then the more interesting one which gets covered in literature, which is uh, the crisis of sort of high-end, upper-middle-class urban males, and that is, well, are they psychologically thrown by living quite unmasculine lives? You know, they, they, they work in offices, uh, they're no longer providers necessarily, certainly they don't serve the state in uniform in the way that they had to generations ago. Does that frazzle them? And you've seen that theme play out in books, but also uh, the the film version of Fight Club, which I remember growing up and watching and thinking, uh, this does not correspond to anything I'm feeling. <laughs> Maybe I will when I'm in my 20s or my 30s, and it didn't happen. So uh, I thought I would I would challenge that I that second idea of an urban middle class crisis of mm. masculinity. Yeah, I guess we're going to touch on both today, but I think. For the three men sitting here in Griselda, yep. I don't know what you think. Uh, hello. <laughs> but I suppose the type of masculinity we perhaps associate more is the one you mainly talk about in your column, kind of gender roles changing, jobs changing. We're talking about a very different thing from... But don't you think it's interesting that the kinds of anxieties that are ascribed to this term crisis of masculinity, which, I mean, I did a quick n-gram search for the term before I came in, and it seems to have really been not used at all until the 80s, uh, well, at least according to the sources that Google used to... Um, assemble their engram thing but it kind of spiked around 1998 and I suppose that ties in with the narratives we were getting then of yeah fight club and also the metrosexual and the idea that kind of the new ladette arguments about gender roles in cosmopolitan centres but actually these kinds of anxieties are I think traceable back far further than that. A generation before that, during the First World War, the crisis of masculinity was framed in terms of conflict and the, and I think the rebranding of, of shell shock, uh, or rather of hysteria as shell shock, which was a, a you know a psychological uh, condition that men could feel unguilty about expressing and manifesting. And there were lots of debates around this time about what was happening to masculinity in an era of kind of industrialised slaughter. I think it has to be kind of framed against femininity as well, though, because as we as culture experiences these crises of masculinity, I think they're sort of tied to the role of women and the position of women in society. And, you know, we said we don't want to talk too much about Trump and Brexit, but I think <laughs> in a way these things can be seen as a response to women having more and more visible roles in society, more and more power. I mean, it's still relative. You know, there's a perceived threat, I think. I, mean, I completely agree that the... To the extent that there is a disruption of masculinity, it's completely the other side of the coin to feminism. And I'm amazed that anyone thinks it's a bad thing. One way of looking at it, and this is the way people do look at it, is that, well, if women are in the workplace and women are more independent, uh, more assertive, more able to assert their views, well, that disrupts the role of men who are traditionally prime, at least domestically and in the workplace. The other way of looking at it is that there's just far less of a burden on a man today. When I'm with friends of mine, and we're all in our sort of mid-30s, 
we almost look over our shoulders and wonder when are we going to when is someone going to interrupt and, and stop <laughs> us getting away with that? Well, we're, so we're not we're not expected <clears throat> to be primary earners <clears throat> anymore. Certainly not sole earners. We're not expected to sort of almost lead a household. The child rearing, if you end up doing any child rearing, is a bit more evenly split than it would have been a while ago. Not evenly split, but a bit more so. <laughs> I've got loads of friends whose wives will have their sort of 12 months maternity leave, get bored after six months and trade away the other six months, which you can do by law, to their husbands. I think, though, I mean, thinking about shared parental leave, which came in a couple of years ago, yeah. the, the kind of take-up rate of that is actually very small, though. So I think, mm. in a sense, there are still these quite old notions of masculinity that perhaps do affect middle-class men. And I think also when it comes to things like parenting, perhaps our sort of societal thinking becomes a bit more aggressive. So we start thinking about the model mm. that our parents set for us. And, and so much of the work of the home is, is is unaccounted for, as, as third-wave feminism has, has taught us, you know, the emotional labour involved kind of domestic in running. Labor. Exactly, yeah, yeah that yeah. should be accounted for. I mean, I suppose one response to the idea that men are trying to claim some special victim status for themselves through this narrative of crisis masculinity is of course that feminism is for both men and women you know it's not it's not an argument that that women be treated differently quite the opposite and i was thinking about this idea of crises of masculinity and i i almost felt like you know if a crisis is defined as a kind of questioning of the norm of the status quo and a kind of questioning of centuries of unchecked privilege i mean more men should be in crisis. This is the good thing. This is <laughs> yeah. the kind of this is a positive state to be in. Mm. Yeah. It's like some people are stuck with the idea that traditional male behaviour is simply a set of very bad habits, and like masculinity <laughs> needs to have a far more wide-reaching definition. But that's true. That. But in, in, as, as Janan says, in, uh, most people I know who have a kind of I, I would say a slightly healthier relationship with their own kind of inner mental lives take on masculine attributes in quite a performative way. I mean, John, you're always talking about my beard whenever we meet, and that's one <laughs> think, manifestation of like choosing to wear the clothing of masculinity in a way that I think has become more prominent in the kinds of social groups that you write about in your in, in your column. Yeah, millions and millions of men do adjust to the expansion of what it means to be mas masculine pretty easily and without performance. And <laughs> these are the people I kind of know socially, so there's a danger of extrapolating too much from... Yeah, is that uh, because we're in London? It wouldn't just be London, it would be, I suppose, the centres of big cities... The cultural uh, metropolitan elite, which yeah. we hear so much about. It, it, that is correct, but it, but that is quite a bit of the country. It's not so small that it's uh, it deserves not to be represented yeah. in the in the discussion that you sometimes see about masculinity in the press. It might be a minority, but it's a pretty big minority. And I see lots of men very easily adjusting to new kinds of masculinity to the extent that even I, as a relatively liberal, uh, slightly poncy metro person, <laughs> find it hard to watch. So I, you know, I think the f column I wrote in Life and Arts a few weeks ago about the guy in the park. So this is a, your classic 30-something, relatively new father, and he's just physically let himself go. It, it, the relationship with his wife clearly, close to home. Yeah. Well, well, just, the relationship with his wife would have peaked in passion seven years <laughs> earlier. He's sort of wearing a lousy Gap T-shirt with the, the breast pocket, just not, <laughs> not, not, not thrilled with life, and clearly mourning an independence he had a while ago. And you see it in every London park. So you know, the secret truth is, it's quite fun to be that person. I, I, I had my, sure I, I had my own crisis of masculinity. They do it for a reason. Yeah. Yeah. But there is an alternative which hardly ever gets portrayed favourably, which is not having kids and just living a sort of free-floating life. 
which when you think about it is a form of masculinity so if you had if you had to list all the abstract nouns or or ideas that you associate with with masculinity one set of them would be duty sacrifice providing for a family etc the other one would just be coming and going as you please roaming exploring the sort of the, the libertarian sex almost that is only ever portrayed when it's portrayed psychotically so there's uh, there's Patrick Bateman in American Psycho there is uh, Hugh Grant's character in About a Boy who's not a psycho but is seen as uh, is pitiful <laughs> and, it, yeah. well exactly and then and then of course he has his epiphany at the end uh, and comes round and gets involved in this kid's life and helps the mother etc i wonder whether there is more room in culture for a portrayal of a deracinated individualistic man who doesn't have kids a uh, free personal life in a way that is not negative not not euphorically positive but just sort of neutral John, what do you, it touches on what you were saying at the very top of the show. Um, so you were on the Booker Prize judging panel last year, and you read lots and lots and lots of books, as you have to. And one of them, which was on the shortlist, and which I know you're a big fan of, was um, David Saloy's All That Man Is, yeah. which is a collection of stories depicting That's a novel. Men. It's a definitely novel. a novel. God, don't start. <laughs> <laughs> That's for another discussion. Um, okay, it's a novel depicting various men going through very different crises. So how mm. does David Saloy for you? Yeah, it's interesting. Masculinity? Well, I think one thing that he's been interested in throughout his career, I mean, I love this this book so much that I went back and read his entire back catalogue. And Saloy has, over the course of his writing career, he's, he's written a, a novel called Spring and another one called London in the Southeast, which investigate similar kinds of masculinity. And they're, they're not the kind of macho posturing of white collar boxing or fight club or indeed kind of beards and um, chopping wood. But they are a kind of depressed, middle management, devitalized state of manhood. All his characters are kind of disappointed, ambitious victims of capitalism. They work in call centers or they work in kind of publishing scams or in the case of All That Man Is, which is just an extraordinary kind of chronological study of, of what it might be like to be a man or nine different men throughout the course of a, of, of a lifetime. They're kind of disappointed, not because of this performative machismo that they lack but for other more gentle and actually more depressing reasons i think the uh, the masculine identity issue is a bit like the race issue in that there's a difference between how the world of culture perceives it and they perceive it as everyone walks around all the time contemplating their identity <laughs> who am i um <laughs> whereas almost absolutely everyone in the real world including very very smart people who do analyse life to, to some extent, really almost never reflect consciously on their own gender identity, their own racial identity. And they might do it, you could argue, subconsciously, and it manifests in weird behaviours because mm. they've got unresolved issues. But, you know, you'd have a tough time establishing that. But perhaps that lack of reflection might lead to the kind... I mean, I don't mean unconscious but not necessarily in a kind of Freudian or analytical sense just the idea that the kinds of roles available to us are generated by by culture by by literature by films by the kinds of discussion we're having now and therefore you're you're you know you're putting on a comfortable sense of your own masculinity is dependent on 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 culture more broadly it's not it's, it's not necessarily um to the good that we're not actively considering these things every time we get out of bed and you know decide what shirt to wear necessarily no. I also feel like I think I mean I don't know if I'm saying this specifically from a woman's point of view, I couldn't know that. But I, I feel like I am considering these issues. I feel I was cycling to work this morning. This like big guy in lycra, like muscled up beside me, overtook me at the lights. Almost, I almost fell off my bike, and I was like, 
oh, that was a, just a really aggressive performance of masculinity. I don't think he, I don't think he was thinking of it like that. I think you're right, Janan. But I felt. But you are like, of the world of culture. I mean, in the in the best sense, you're you're of, and I to, to an extent, maybe all of us are of that relatively rarefied group of people who um, think in these terms. Who have these ready narratives to go to. Yeah, sort of and, and, the, and the terminology. And the danger is that we assume everyone else reflects to the same extent. The race parallel is the one that gets me because every immigrant novel features the immigrant as quite a neurotic person. How do I reconcile my ancestral values with modern Britain, modern America, wherever it's set? If you are a certain type of man, I can completely understand the perspective of people who've economically suffered over the past generation or two. And that's getting all the coverage it does deserve, mainly in the news, but also to, a, to an extent in culture. But also there has to be the, the acknowledgement that if you're a relatively middle class man working in a service industry in a city, your, your options have never been better. Perhaps one reason it's not manifested in, in literature to the, the degree that, that you would like to see is simply because men who are who kind of have that degree of privilege don't feel compelled to write about it. They're just but freed also, up to write about it. is it that interesting to read about? <laughs> I mean, I think we enjoy reading stories of kind of struggle and difficulty, to, and that's to be very basic about it. But, I mean, I don't know if I could get through 300 pages of a... You know, a white man in his mid thirties well, living is. a great <laughs> life. I don't, I don't want to read that. Yeah, that did you get through my struggle? It was your struggle. I did not get through. Right. Yeah. The problem begins when you're having to strain the material to make it seem that a guy earning eighty grand in the middle of London is struggling because of non-material things. These novels end up straining reality a bit too thinly. But there are some very terrifying statistics, aren't there, about you know male suicide rates? Which I think probably it's the biggest killer of men between between twenty and forty five. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it's you know thousands of percent higher than female suicide rates. It's easy to then say, well, there's clearly some psychic malaise that's there that even even wealthy young men aren't protected from in some way. I'd argue for a pluralisms of masculinity and conversations about it. As would I, but I think we've in real life we've kind of got it. There are plural versions of masculinity all around you done by people who have transitioned from the traditional model to something newer it's almost in the interests of the cultural world to overreg how much neurosis there is out there because as you say it, it, it does make for interesting narratives it just makes for slightly implausible narratives uh, but how sometimes. do you account for that that gender imbalance then in, in suicide rates men also suffer far higher rates of mental illnesses boys are far less likely to be able to read than girls or they learn to read much more slowly the prison uh, population is 95 percent mm. men yeah i would imagine given the depth the severity of the drug statistics being skewed male suicide statistics being skewed male mental illness etc those problems are so deep that it would be implausible that they would be caused by something that's happened in the past 20 or 30 years in other words the changing gender roles the fact that you're no longer quite as defined in your uh, domestic life as you would have been as a, as a man a while ago. Surely it's something a bit more deep about basic male wiring. I don't think there is proof though that women and men have different wirings and it, there's lots of evidence that how you treat boys and girls in young infancy it has just as much... Oh, there's evidence right. that oh, oh, well, okay. you, you <laughs> let, okay, we can we could, if you want, pretend that everyone's a tabula rasa and you get born as a blank slate 
and the fact that you belong to a species that has been around for 150,000 years and that's just in its in its current physical form doesn't have a bearing but it would be a shallow <laughs> account of modern male problems to say well because of this economic change that happened 5 seconds to midnight <laughs> in historical terms all these problems are manifesting now yeah, and thankfully i'm going to pass around some um questionnaires for you both we've come a long way i hope <laughs> since 1948 so we're all right now looking at a psychology test called how masculine or feminine are you so From you want to read one personality out personality <laughs> psycho quiz you enjoy planting flowers or you prefer vegetables one or the other john can Which i say both pick? no flowers then <laughs> i get a veg box delivery that's, that's how metropolitan elite i am janan reading you'd enjoy reading the winning of the war in europe in the pacific or you want a romantic novel and want to read the black rose has to be one or the other you can have war or romance <laughs> not both i would go for the non-fiction in that out of that choice. <laughs> uh, only because the, the the romance novel just looks like it the worst. It does look terrible, doesn't it? Kind of yeah. Yeah. Airport, uh, it's written by a man, I note, the, uh, exactly. the romantic novel. So uh, both yeah. of you have refused um, with this 1948 test to, <laughs> to accept <laughs> one or the other option. I, th I think this questionnaire is exactly proof of how good we have things now. Hi, is that Neil? Hey, Jeff. Hey, good, thank you. So, you've just had lunch with the Jamaican-born poet and essayist um, Claudia Rankin. Um, how was she? Great. Yeah, she was uh, super interesting and uh, and it was a lot of fun. And wh where did you do it? Was it in New York? Where did she take you? Uh, we went to uh, ABC Kitchen, which is just off Union Square in Manhattan, not far from where she lives. Cool, and what was the restaurant like? Uh, it's sort of a, you know, organic farm-to-table affair by uh, the celebrity chef John George. And Claudia, she's been going there for years, and one of the reasons that she likes it a lot is because when she was undergoing chemotherapy for breast cancer a few years ago, she discovered that it was one of the few restaurants that she could go to and uh, not feel ill after having a meal. And um, what did you guys eat? I had the $24 burger, uh, which ABC Kitchen is famous for. It was great. We shared my fries. Uh, she had the uh, black sea bass over spinach. So all in all, fairly cheap lunch. The bosses will be happy because we've had some pretty expensive ones recently. Yeah, pretty cheap because she, uh, she demurred when I, when I uh, mentioned that our bosses tend to like a boozy lunch. So without any wine or alcohol on the bill, I think it came out uh, at a price our editors will like. So tell us, um, why are we interviewing her now? Um, she just won a $625,000 award for being a genius as part of the Mac MacArthur Genius Grant. What, she's, what is she doing with that money? Rankin, she's, uh, she's starting a um, center, f uh, sorry, the Racial Imaginary Institute. She's a, a poet and an essayist, and she writes a lot about sort of race, blackness, um, and whiteness. And one of the things she's doing with the Institute, sort of the first focus, the first projects will be about deconstructing whiteness. And it's sort of a, 
it's obviously something that has been looked at by uh, scholars in the past, but it's sort of a unique way to look at uh, racial constructs in the U.S. Um, from the perspective of how whiteness is sort of set as the default or normal against which you know blackness and people of color are made to be the other. So I'm guessing you must have spoken about Trump, but how else um, might her theories have played out in kind of in your discussion? Yeah, we did. We talked a lot about Trump, but uh, one of the things I was uh, excited to talk to her about was uh, the Grammys and Beyonce losing album of the year to Adele, which sort of raised a lot of complicated uh, questions about race and culture, uh, given that you know, Beyonce's album Lemonade is sort of this highly ambitious visual album that sort of attempts to encapsulate the black experience in America, and Adele made a, a good pop record. Um, but she won, and it plays into a lot of the stuff that Rankin explores in her, uh, in her books and essays. And how do you see her, her voice in the in the discussion and debate going on right now about how black people are treated in America? I think it's a really important one and, and influential, and you can see her influence in the work of writers like Ta-Nehisi Coates. It's, it, it's a critical voice, and it explores sort of these issues of race in, very, in a very visceral manner. I'm excited to see what she does next. So what did she say about Trump? Uh, she said that she thought he would win. Um, and her point was basically that the reason that people might be depressed about him having one is that he says out loud and articulates what to her America has always been. Um, and that the reason that people are upset is that it sort of breaks the norms of civility to say, Mexicans get out of here, even though that might be sort of what America is, is about, according to her. Okay, sounds great. Thanks so much, Neil. Thanks a lot, Jeff. Gluten-free soy sauce. Frozen organic berries. Buckwheat noodles. Hemp protein powder. Our cacao powder. Probably avocado. Spinach. Chia seeds. It's so awesome, and you'll feel amazing. Deliciously Ella, otherwise known as Ella Mills, formerly Ella Woodward, is known as the queen of clean. Yeah, so she cooks mainly vegetarian food. I mean, it's actually vegan food, although she doesn't really use the label vegan, but it's lots of vegetables, it's no dairy, it's no meat. So we have her new book in front of us, which is called Deliciously Ella with Friends. To give you an idea of some of the recipes, uh, pistachio and apricot quinoa, cashew sour cream and guacamole. Tortillas, I can see there, minty pea puree. So, yeah, all vegetables, very clean, very supposedly good for you. They're very easy to follow, very simple. She's definitely kind of pared back the number of ingredients that you have. And they're great for kind of like a Wednesday night, half an hour dinner. Funnily enough, we both came to her not through her Instagram or online, but my sister's called Ella, so twice friends have given her the cookbook, so I actually <laughs> saw it at her house. And, and your mum's... And my mum is a big fan of Deliciously Ella, yeah. yeah. You actually got the book signed, didn't you, to give to your mum? Yes, I did. I got Ella to sign the book in the studio. But it's interesting, though, because as you say, um, most people, or at least the first kind of wave of Deliciously Ella fans, came to her through her blog and through Instagram. She has like a million followers on Instagram. 
Her book was also like one of the fastest selling ever cookbooks or something the, crazy the like that. The fastest ever debut, yeah, her first yeah. book, um, which she wrote off the back of this very, very successful blog. It's not been like all totally good news. Like she is, she is very much part of this backlash against the idea of clean eating and kind of like people who have questioned them for bogus nutrition tips and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, exactly. There has been a real backlash against clean eating recently and against the kind of what clean eating represents, which is a kind of fetishizing of food and the idea of thinking about food in this kind of very polarised moral way, you know, clean and dirty. And it's not really, it's very far from the kind of Nigella Lawson idea of indulgence and deliciousness. Although she is, of course, called Deliciously Ella. <laughs> <laughs> Fairly recently, she's actually moved away from this clean tag. She's kind of been oh, completely, herself yeah. from it, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. She's she's very much distancing her, herself from that. And actually, I don't think, she, to be fair, she really did use the word clean ever. She was just sort of lumped together with these other clean eating food writers. But she says, you know, that her food is not about deprivation. It's about making vegetables taste good and sort of elevating vegetables to something that are quite sort of glamorous. Do you think she does do that? I mean, from the food that my mum cooks, I would say it is very delicious, yes. Shout out. <laughs> so she's an internet sensation, but she hasn't exactly come from nowhere. No, she's the daughter of Sean Woodward, who's a former Tory MP who defected to Labour, and he then became the Northern Ireland Secretary. And her mother is from the Sainsbury dynasty. So, you know, she's kind of, she did grow up with parents who were in the, in the public eye. And her husband is Matt Mills, who also had a parent in the public eye. He is the son of the Labour peer and former cabinet minister Tessa Jowell, and also the son of lawyer David Mills. Um, Together they've launched a business together, they have some delis. But she came to success through quite an unusual route, and she came into the studio to tell us her story. I think we look at food in such a binary way. So often it's very black and white, you're kind of healthy or you're not, you're on a diet or you're not, and you know, I, I know that... It seems like a bit of a shame because I think there's a kind of sensible, slightly boring middle ground, which is about a balance that suits you and does suit you physically and mentally and also something that's sustainable forever. It's, you know, I get so frustrated by all the magazines that say, oh, have abs by the end of the week and lose a stone in a day. And it's all so ridiculous. I've always been the person that needs food before they do anything in their day. There's four of us um, and I was the only one that my mum could not get out of the house without having to like, sit down and eat properly. And the minute I'd wake up in the morning, I'd be like, I'm so hungry. And I'm still the same now where she had to kind of force feed my other siblings. Like most university students, my diet was probably not amazing. And there was a lot of Ben and Jerry's and Haribo. And um, we even, I one remember doing a party for St. Patrick's Day and we thought it was a really good idea to dye all the vodka green with food dye. And um, so getting all the good stuff in. I was at St. Andrews University and after my second year there, I got really ill quite out of nowhere with a condition uh, which is called postural tachycardia syndrome which affects your autonomic nervous system so um, I spent about four months in and out of hospital and I had problems controlling my heart rate circulation digestion immune system lots of other parts of my body once I was diagnosed I was prescribed all this medication I tried steroids and sort of you put on things like beta blockers and all kinds of things to try and help the various conditions um, and the various symptoms and I spent most of the following year in bed basically doing all of this and honestly with very little success I was probably still spending 
80% of my time on my own in bed, really. The physical side of that was very challenging of not being able to be kind of normal, for want of a better word, and being able to do what my friends could and what I'd been able to do before. But that also massively affected me on a mental level and I really, really struggled with it and I hit a real rock bottom. I realised that it was worth trying to do something maybe to help myself and so I became interested in, in what I could do and I spent some time obviously on Dr Google as we all do now and I was really interested in lots of different people I was reading about who had helped all kinds of different things and I was fascinated by that and wondered whether or not there was anything in it for me and so I decided that I would try and incorporate lots more whole food in my diet, learn to cook, include loads of fruit and veg, try and move away from lots of processed food. But I had two obstacles of having no idea how to cook and having not really any idea what healthy food was as such. I definitely wasn't aware of quinoa or kale or almond milk or any of the rest of that kind of world. And so I decided that I'd really immerse myself in it. I had really no idea where to start or what to start with and no idea what went with what, what would taste good. I spent most of the first couple of months basically eating what was effectively gruel, just <laughs> oats and water. Truthfully, I have no idea why the blog was such a success. It kind of surprised me more than anybody. I started writing it originally with, as I said, no intention of anyone reading it. It's tempting to put all the pressure on kale as a, as a magic thing. And, you know, you always read, oh, it's a superfood, but I'm not sure. I'm totally 100% there. I think feeling good is definitely a kind of, I guess, a slightly holistic, bigger picture. And I think it comes from sleep and stress, your relationships, both with yourself and the people around you. Sometimes I feel like you've been a little bit pigeonholed into a certain area, whereas for me, I want it to be something that whether or not, you know, you are a vegan in which, you know, all respect for anybody that's anything and you want to eat that all the time, that's great. But also if your best thing in the world is a dirty burger, but you want to maybe have some broccoli on the side and actually enjoy it and do it in an interesting way, well then, like, I hope you enjoy my broccoli. For me, the word clean isn't my favorite word. Honestly, what I want to try and do is make vegetables cool. Truly, like that's one of my biggest missions. I remember when we opened our delis for the first time and I did it with um, my husband, Matthew, who's my business partner. And he, I think, has a great approach. He loves, you know, he's like a big one for porridge and berries and things in the morning. We want to make amazing veggie Thai curries. We want to do corn fritters with homemade baked beans and guacamole. We want to do beautiful salads with um, roasted artichoke and edamame hummuses. It's been really exciting as, as it's grown, the audience has grown and I think the demographic's gone way further than I thought it would and it, you know, just did um, a book tour recently with my recent book and I, the average age was probably 20 years older than it was two years ago which is really exciting and lots of different people. Well, originally it only started through Instagram and it was when Instagram was quite young and quite new and so it was a very much kind of, 
I guess, millennial audience only, really. And actually, this time, it's their parents are there too, and even their grandparents. I think social media is a really complicated place. I'm not convinced that we talk about it properly because I do think that it's a great place for inspiration and ideas and sharing holiday snaps with your friends or, you know, just some, a positive place to share things. But it's a place of ideas and inspiration. I don't think it's a place of reality. makes me sad when we do a food event that you know a supper club or something which is meant to be a really nice evening and it's just one thing if someone gets out of their phone takes a quick picture puts it away but then you see other people literally like ding 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 all night and you think are you enjoying it or are you just taking a picture of it before the book came out I'd really I'd started off when I as I did the blog and I started doing a bit of social media and people said oh would you teach cooking classes and I thought well, I don't really know how to but sure why not you know it's uh, an opportunity and you know I'm a yes person so okay and that was kind of how I first got started and then I decided to invest what I don't from the cookery classes into an app because I find blogs quite annoying and that was the kind of big surprise because overnight that went to number one on the food and drink section of the iTunes store and then we put the book up and because the community on online was becoming really strong and people were really enjoying it and I guess people hadn't done much like it beforehand we sold out of books before the book was published and we had to change publication date and after that the kind of press really picked up and then there was a big story around it and it was quite surreal in lots of ways. It was amazing, obviously, seeing all these opportunities and the book became the fastest selling debut cookbook ever in the UK and the best selling book on Amazon that year. And it was insane and beyond my wildest expectations, but it was quite overwhelming. I was really young. I was really, really naive. I had no idea what I was doing. And suddenly people were talking about you rather than to you. And although all the opportunities were incredible and I wanted to run with them and, and you know, it's exciting... It was really overwhelming and I felt incredibly vulnerable and actually really struggled with the kind of feeling of anxiety around it. Both Matt and I's parents went to public eye a bit when we were growing up and I think there was definitely something we kind of connected on. Although... It is me on my social channels and obviously here today and everything like that. I talk about what we do and, and food and things like that. I don't want to be pictured going to a party. I don't want to be on a red carpet. I don't want to be famous for being famous. Did we have a very foodie wedding? Yeah, we did, although Matt wasn't as fussed about it. But my kind of big thing with our wedding was I wanted to be very, very low-key and very relaxed. I had a no-shoe rule. We got married on the beach and I banned anyone from wearing shoes. It wasn't vegetarian food. Again, I'm, I'm not kind of ever here to tell anyone else what to do. I mean, Matt also went to university in Texas. And so if I, in America, and so if I'd said to all his Texan friends, oh, do you want to come to my vegan wedding? <laughs> They would have said, no, actually, I, I don't think I do, really. 
Everything Else is produced by Chica Ayres. We've been Griselda Murray-Brown and John Sonia, and our music is composed and produced by Fatum. Feel free to get in touch with us and let us know what you think of the show. You can find us on Twitter at FT Life and Arts, or you can email us at everythingelse at ft.com. And you can subscribe to Everything Else in all the usual places, including iTunes, Stitcher and Acast, as well as at ft.com slash everythingelse. <laughs>